Hello again, podcast listeners. I am Dr. James Cole, and I once again am excited to share with you my latest chapter of Healthcare in America, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I want you all to know that I pre-record these podcasts often months in advance, and I first recorded this one on February 16th of this year. Of course, so much has happened since then with respect to the novel coronavirus pandemic, the closure of non-essential businesses and activities to promote safe social distancing, and all of the regional surges of confirmed cases that I felt compelled to edit into this podcast a shout-out specifically directed at all of the wonderful citizens out there who have been so good about staying home, about staying at least six feet apart from one another, and all of those who have done everything humanly possible to prevent the spread of the virus. Whereas I'm keenly aware of the fact that many of you are not doing this entirely by choice, and I most certainly do recognize the extreme sacrifices so many are making for the greater good of all, know that you all are making a difference. The efforts made by the compliant many are beginning to flatten the curve, and that is something we all needed to happen. Thus, your efforts are making a huge difference. You are giving hospitals and health systems more time to prepare, to put into play the various mitigation strategies needed to best manage this pandemic, and you are giving us all the necessary time to allow for new treatments to be discovered. So keep up the good work. For those of you who are natural leaders, lead by example and influence others to not let their guard down by falsely assuming that we are all in the safe and in the clear. Mask up America and maintain a safe social distance from your friends and from your neighbors at all times. Wash your hands as often as humanly possible and hope that our nation can once again open up for business sooner rather than later. Whereas I'm kind of dreading this topic, it's something that needs to be talked about, and that's the overly complicated, overly burdensome, and overly expensive health topic of health insurance. The fact that it's so darn complicated is something that makes me want to lump this all into the bad category of healthcare in America, and the fact that it's so insanely expensive makes me want to push it into the ugly category. But because healthcare is so costly, we all really do need health insurance, and fortunately, there really are plenty of options available. So perhaps some might say that that, all those options, can be considered something good about healthcare in America. I say that U.S. health insurance is a hybrid example encompassing the good, the bad, and the ugly of healthcare in America. But before I get into anything in particular, I need to say that the term insurance bugs me a little because almost none of us have true health insurance comparable to, say, flood insurance or life insurance, where we pay small premiums toward a policy which often never pays out. But if it does, it's typically a one-time event, a big lump sum event in a potentially catastrophic or really you know, bad situation. In the case of flood insurance, should your home never flood, you don't get any benefit. You forfeit whatever you've paid in for years and years to the insurance company, and thank God you've never needed it. But if your home does flood and there are monumental expenses in order to once again make your home habitable, the insurance company often pays hundreds or even hundreds of thousands of dollars more than you've ever paid into the policy. It's a gamble. It's a gamble on the part of the insurance company and it's a gamble on the part of the insured. But what we call health insurance in this country is really more like a number of different co-ops where patients pay some and third-party payers uh, also pay some. But it's also darn complicated that perhaps only those in the health insurance business really understand it all. To start this conversation, I think it's best to talk a bit about the origins of health insurance because I always feel that if we better understand our past, we can better understand our present and better anticipate our future. So when did it all begin, at least in this country? 
Well, in 1850, an insurance company began selling policies to people who worked on the railroad and in the steamboat industry, of all things. These were true insurance policies, as the company only paid benefits to the policyholder should they suffer an injury as a result of a rail or steamboat accident. Within a few decades, other insurance companies began selling other very similar-like policies. However, for the vast majority of Americans, from that time up through about the uh, mid-1900s, patients were expected to pay for all of their healthcare expenses out of pocket regardless of the cost. An early precursor of what we call health insurance came about just prior to the Great Depression where hospitals began recruiting healthy patients and charged them periodic fees to essentially prepay for potential future services. In World War II, we desperately needed laborers uh, in this country to support the war effort, and numerous companies which made war-related materials were incentivized to offer employees fringe benefits, the most desirable of which was health insurance. Whereas the war effort prohibited factories and industries which made war material from raising wages, they did not regulate fringe benefits. And so the company-sponsored health insurance plans became a very attractive way to get employees to work hard and stay on the job. Now, following the war, more and more Americans had a health insurance policy through their employer. And in 1958, approximately 75% of all U.S. citizens were insured. In 1965, President Lyndon Johnson enacted the Medicare and Medicaid programs, government-run and publicly funded health insurance plans to help the old and the impoverished sectors of America. Medicare was and remains a federally funded and regulated program, and Medicaid is actually a multitude of different state-run health uh, welfare programs. Of course, even with all the traditional healthcare plans offered and with the Medicare and Medicaid programs both flourishing, there were still too many Americans without any sort of healthcare coverage. So in 2014, the Affordable Care Act, or the ACA, often referred to as Obamacare, became law, whereby uh, a multitude of state-sponsored health insurance cooperatives came into being, offering essential health care benefits to any and all members who chose to enroll. Multiple tiers of these Affordable Care Act plans were being available with different amounts or percentages of the bill extended to the patient, i.e. that portion which the patient had to pay. These were variable depending on whatever plan the consumer chose. The Affordable Care Act also offered Medicaid-based options for those in the lowest or lower, at least, economic classes, and these greatly subsidized these healthcare plans, but were not free of charge. Currently, about 60% of, of Americans have some sort of employer sponsored healthcare insurance plan, and about 9% have traditional privately purchased health insurance, as often these are independent contractors or very small business owners. About 15% of Americans are covered by Medicare, another 20% are covered by Medicaid. About 4% of Americans have one of the Affordable Care Act exchange plans, and another 4% are covered under military health insurance plans. A lonely 1% of Americans are exclusively covered by the VA. If you add up all these numbers, they well exceed 100%, but that's because there is some overlap and in some cases, double coverage. For example, many people who are on Medicare also have a traditional health insurance plan, either as a retirement benefit or as a purchased supplement. But even though there are so many different categories of health insurance out there, about 10% of the population still has no health care coverage of any sort. Now, I personally believe that health care is something that we really should be able to provide, at least on some level, to everyone in this country. But I personally don't go so far as to declare health care as a basic human right because, you know, frankly, I believe there are very few things which are 
unalienable rights. But I do believe that our constitution states that we are to promote the general welfare of the people of this nation. And to me, that does include health care. There is no question that we need health insurance. In fact, all but the very richest of the rich need health insurance because health care is simply too costly for nearly anyone but those who are extremely wealthy. Now, I'm not going to do anything other than scratch the very surface trying to explain why healthcare is so darn expensive, but there are several basic reasons. First of all, healthcare administrative costs are astronomical. Nearly 25% of every healthcare dollar spent goes toward the administrative aspects of running the business of healthcare. That's not doctors or nurses, that's the bean counters, the managers, the executives, and so on. The number of healthcare administrator jobs has grown exponentially over the past several decades far surpassing the the number of actual physicians or nurse jobs. Next, modern-day pharmaceuticals cost an arm and a leg. Research and development of newer drugs to combat antibiotic resistance and to better alleviate disabling conditions, such as Crohn's disease, autoimmune disorders, and certain cancers, is an extremely costly endeavor. And because we all want the best drugs to better our overall well-being, the medications we are prescribed cost a lot. Technology is also very expensive. Whereas when I first started working in an emergency room in 1981, there was only one CT scanner in the entire hospital, and it took an entire hour to scan just one patient's head. Today, CT scanners are so fast and so sophisticated that we can scan a head, neck, chest, abdomen, and pelvis with much greater image resolution and clarity all in about 10 minutes. That kind of speed and quality costs a lot of money, and a lot of doctors order a lot of CT scans. Unfortunately, many of those CT scans probably are are unnecessary, but patients demand them. And there is such a constant threat of a misdiagnosis that scanning is one of the many things doctors do to avoid a potential lawsuit. Thus, defensive medicine is a real contributor to our overall burdensome healthcare costs. And finally, all of the computers, the software, and the technical support required to keep and maintain all of our nation's mandatory electronic health record systems are also egregiously costly. Regardless of the origin of these costs, they are all ultimately passed on to the consumer, the patient, that is, to those who can or do pay. Thus, every one of us, with rarest exception, truly needs some sort of health insurance in order to avoid bankruptcy. And what about the cost of health insurance? Many argue that the health insurance company's exorbitant CEO salaries contribute to the high cost of our health insurance. Whereas it's difficult for me to comprehend how many millions in salary are or are not fair, it's a bit unfathomable to me that the CEO of Cigna Health Insurance receives $49 million a year. Lower on the scale, but still light years out of my reach, are the CEO salaries of United Healthcare and Aetna, who earn $20 million and $28 million per year, respectively. But then again, America tolerates very high uh, CEO salaries in the entertainment sector, such as the NFL and Universal Pictures, whose CEOs earn an annual salary of $31 million and $46 million, respectively. Just to put things into context, though, the CEO of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the one who is in charge of and who oversees all of our nation's armed forces, uniformed service members, and civilians, only earns a measly $200,000 per year. I'm just saying. Since I never see patients' bills, since I have absolutely no influence over how much a patient gets charged, and since I've been very fortunate to have very few personal or family health care costs, I had to do a Google search to learn what an average hospital cost is for various diagnoses. Now, I'm well aware that two hospitals in the very same county charge very differently for the exact same diagnosis and treatment. So what I'll be presenting to you are average hospital costs with full knowledge that some patients are likely to be charged far more than what I'm quoting. 
and that what I'm quoting does not include many of the physicians' bills for their services. I wasn't shocked but still embarrassed to see that someone admitted and treated for uncomplicated simple pneumonia, one of the most common admitting diagnoses, is charged an average of at least $10,000. Those admitted with a stroke are charged an average of $15,000. Patients admitted with sepsis are billed an average $20,000. And patients admitted with a, say, cardiac valvular disorder often receive a bill for more than $60,000. And these are all patients who have uncomplicated versions of these diagnoses. Those who have longer than average hospital lengths of stay or those who develop complications can receive a bill for one or more hundred thousand dollars. And most patients simply cannot afford to pay that kind of money. Most of us unequivocally need some sort of health insurance, but then again, understanding the maze of options can be pretty darn complicated. But before I get into the various different types of health insurance, I'd like to take a brief diversion and give a shout out to some of my heroes to those in healthcare who truly do great things. And they are the EMTs and the paramedics of the pre-hospital EMS crews. These pre-hospital providers are the first line of protection for countless Americans who call on them every single day. And regardless of the weather, the time of day or night, and whether the rest of the country is enjoying time with family or celebrating a major holiday, they are out saving lives. Based on the example set by the Navy corpsmen and the Army medics of the Vietnam War, the paramedic program evolved into what it is now, an extremely sophisticated and necessary arm to our already robust healthcare system. These heroes of mine, they're the first responders who treat everything from heart attacks and strokes to gunshot wounds to delivering babies. Imagine what this nation would be like without these licensed professionals who often work under immense stress in austere places. So I salute all of those who dedicate their lives to saving others. And that salute today goes out to my brothers and sisters who are America's EMTs and paramedics. If you happen to see one in the next few days or weeks, thank them for their service and tell them that Dr. James Cole, trauma surgeon and combat veteran, admires each and every one of them very much. So at this point, let me try to navigate through the different types of health insurance and try to explain some of the different costs and benefits associated with the different types of plans. For starters, it's important to note that everything I'm going to talk about will be mostly in generalities, as there are literally too numerous to count different types of healthcare plans and variations from one insurance company to another to possibly get through them all. In fact, there are over 900 different health insurance companies, and each of them offers many different plans. Thus, we could never truly cover the subject. However, I need to start with something, and so I'm going to start with covering the traditional health insurance plans, if you will, and let's talk about the PPOs and the HMOs. When I say traditional health insurance plans, I'm talking about the big name insurance companies such as United Healthcare, Anthem, Aetna, Cigna, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and Kaiser, and so on. But there are also countless others out there who offer variations of the healthcare plans I'm going to discuss here. So let's start with the PPO plans. PPO stands for Preferred Provider Organization, and this is often a more expensive and higher end plan than the others I'll discuss shortly. PPOs offer a number of benefits, such as patients being able to refer themselves to a specialist rather than having to have a referral approved by a primary care provider. In fact, patients are not required to even have a primary care physician, and these are great plans for patients who like to navigate the healthcare system on their own and make their own referral choices. All physicians and hospitals within a PPO network are contracted, and thus patients are highly encouraged to only seek services within their contracted network. However, patients can go outside of their network typically in exchange for a higher cost. For example, PPO patients will all have to pay an annual deductible, often several thousands of dollars, prior to any insurance benefits kicking in. And once those benefits do kick in, perhaps 80% of approved expenses are paid by the insurance company 
but the other 20% of the bill is the responsibility of the patient. However, if a patient seeks care at a hospital or with a doctor outside of the PPO network, that patient's share of the expenses will be higher, likely 30%. Patients who choose the PPO option, of course, pay a monthly premium, most of which is actually paid by the employer, but this premium is often significantly higher than the other healthcare option uh, premiums, despite often steep deductibles. However, the good news is that these more costly plans, they're usually more lucrative for the doctors in the hospitals, and in turn, a lot of doctors and hospitals are in most of the PPO networks. Whereas the consumer pays more, there's greater flexibility, and more often than not, patients can receive their care where they want and by whom. Next, I'm going to cover the HMOs. These are health maintenance organizations, which control more of a patient's healthcare options, but in turn, save the patients a lot of money. HMOs, they strive to promote wellness, as many healthcare plans do, but HMOs tend to focus even more on disease prevention than the others, thereby striving to keep patients out of hospitals so as to curtail costs. HMOs contract with a large pool of primary care providers to whom patients are assigned and who serve as the gatekeepers of the healthcare system. Any and all referrals to a specialist must be made by the primary care physician, and any visit to a specialist outside of a referral network will not be covered. Specialists are also contracted by the HMOs, and thus there's a limited pool of specialists to whom patients can be referred by their PCP, regardless of the patient's desires. Healthcare premiums are typically far lower than the PPO plans, and often there is little to no upfront deductible prior to benefits paying out. Typically, patients pay a co-fee for emergency room access and for various doctor's visits, but these are usually rather nominal. Unlike the PPO plans, where the patient may pay 20% or more of the share of all healthcare costs incurred, most HMO plans charge no shared percentage, assuming that the care was obtained within the narrow confines of the contracted HMO network. Any healthcare costs accrued from services obtained outside of the HMO network are usually the sole responsibility of the patient, and thus, it's absolutely critical that the patient know ahead of time who he can see and who he or she cannot see. HMOs also tend to do most, if not all, of the paperwork, and thus, these plans are quite attractive for patients who want to save money and not be bothered with the administrative side of going to a doctor. However, the downside is that patients often can't go to the doctor of their choosing, nor the specialist they prefer, and in many cases can only receive inpatient healthcare at one or a limited few hospitals, lest they be forced to pay an egregiously expensive bill, which most people just simply can't afford. Now let's talk about Medicare. Medicare is one of those federally controlled and regulated healthcare insurance plans, initially designed to help elderly retired patients who had no other health plan but was eventually expanded to include coverage for totally and permanently disabled patients, patients with end-stage kidney disease, and a few other things. We all pay for Medicare. In fact, a portion of your pay has been deducted from your paycheck from the very day you started working. Most people pay into Medicare for almost 50 years before being eligible to receive normal benefits, and thus you probably paid a lot of money into the system by the time you're able to start collecting benefits. But Medicare is complicated because although you've already paid a lot of money into the system over those 50 years, and although it is an entitlement benefit for those over age 65, it is not free. In fact, none of that money that you've contributed all those years is even left. It's all been paid out to past and present Medicare recipients, and hopefully there will be enough people still working and able to pay into the system to help fund your Medicare benefits when you retire. All Medicare recipients need to enroll in order to receive coverage, and there are monthly premiums and certain deductibles that patients will have to pay as well for most of the options. And there are several parts to Medicare. There's Part A, Part B, and so on, and so it's not perfectly cut and dry. 
For starters, there's Medicare Part A, and this is the only benefit that is not associated with a monthly premium. Medicare Part A only covers portions of the care provided when hospitalized, as well as some hospice and skilled nursing home care. It does not cover routine outpatient health care, and it does not cover prescription drugs. And although one does not have to pay a monthly premium to receive Medicare Part A inpatient coverage, Medicare recipients must pay $1,400 in deductible fees each time they're admitted. And if a beneficiary is hospitalized for more than 60 consecutive days, there is an additional charge of $350 per day. And if one accrues more than 90 total inpatient hospital days, there is a $700 per day charge. If following discharge from the hospital, the patient, say, can't go home but needs to spend some time in a skilled nursing facility, Medicare patients are required to pay $175 for each day that they're admitted to one of those skilled uh, facilities. Thus, Medicare Part A is certainly no free lunch, and patients who can afford to purchase a supplemental health insurance plan are very wise to do so. Medicare Part B covers outpatient health care, but to receive the benefit, most recipients are required to pay monthly premiums of about $150 and the highest earners, but that's actually people that are only paying about like $86,000 a year, will need to pay even more than $150 a month. In addition to covering doctor's visits, Medicare Part B also covers outpatient lab testing, screening procedures, and ambulance services. However, there's also a $200 annual deductible, and 20% of all outpatient services are charged directly to and are the responsibility of the patient. Now, Medicare Part C, otherwise known as Medicare Advantage, supplements Parts A and B. Thus, beneficiaries need to be enrolled in both A and B to receive Part C benefits. Part C covers things which the others uh, don't. For example, Medicare Part C covers dental and vision, as well as things like wheelchair ramps and safety grips for the home. To make matters even more complicated, there are Medicare Advantage PPOs and Medicare Advantage HMOs, and these follow the same models as non-Medicare HMO and PPO plans. Medicare Part C is costly. And thus, if you choose this, you need to pick your Medicare Advantage HMO or PPO plan very wisely. Some patients purchase Medicare Part D, which is a prescription drug coverage plan contracted through a private health insurance company. Medicare Part D costs about $4,000 per year and doesn't necessarily cover everything. It doesn't take much to see that despite patients thinking that by the time they reach 65 and are Medicare eligible, that they may absolutely be shocked to learn that they will still find themselves responsible for substantial portions of their healthcare costs. Now, Medicaid is completely different from Medicare. Medicaid is a public-funded, state-regulated healthcare welfare program. It's actually a number of different programs, but see, each state runs Medicaid a little bit differently, so they're all a little bit different. Medicaid plans cover both inpatient and outpatient care, physician care, lab and x-ray studies, ambulance transportation, and so on. However, prescription drugs, physical and occupational therapy, dental and vision care, and a variety of other benefits are not necessarily covered or may only be partially covered. As most state Medicaid programs differ from region to region, some states require the beneficiaries to contribute very small monthly payments and may have some small co-pays. But for most people who are eligible for Medicaid, the services that they receive from a hospital or wherever are free to the beneficiary. However, Medicaid doesn't necessarily guarantee a recipient access to health care. Whereas all emergency rooms are required to evaluate and render care to any and all who present themselves regardless of their insurance status or ability to pay, the same does not extend to outpatient visits. 
physicians are not required to accept Medicaid patients because, simply put, Medicaid does not pay enough to keep the lights on. Whereas I don't dabble in the financial aspects of my practice, I've been told by private practice colleagues of mine that state Medicaid programs reimburse less than the cost of doing business, and payments from the state are often delayed for a year or even more. Thus, although nearly $600 billion have been spent by the various state Medicaid programs annually to care for the nearly one-fifth of all Americans who are too poor to make it by, by any other means, it isn't enough to attract many generalist or specialist physicians, and thus, it can be difficult to find the right type of doctor for Medicaid patients. For example, there are no urologists within a 40-mile area of my hospital, which accepts Medicaid, and plenty of Medicaid recipients can't afford a car, and there's no reliable long-distance public transportation. Thus, if Medicaid patients need to see a urologist, and this is this way in many regions, not just mine, they may not be able to find someone to take care of them. They may have to just go without care or somehow travel very, very long distance to find a, a specialist, if you will, that accepts Medicaid. My gosh, I feel like I've covered just about every type of health insurance option out there, and I want to stop, but I can't because I've left out one very, very important plan, and that's the ACA, the Affordable Care Act plan, or Obamacare, as many call it. Actually, there is no one Obamacare plan, but in fact, passage of the Affordable Care Act resulted in the creation of numerous marketplace healthcare exchange options, most of which are just a bit different from the others, and healthcare premiums are different based on the state and based on the level of coverage desired. For example, each state offers bronze, silver, gold, and platinum plans. The platinum plan being the best of the bunch, covering an average of 90% of all medical costs, leaving a 10% share of the costs for the patient to pick up. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum are the bronze level plans, which only cover 60% of incurred costs and thus leave 40% of the responsibility for the patient to pay. All Obamacare plans cover inpatient and outpatient services, pregnancy, mental health, prescription drugs, physical and occupational therapies, and prevention services. Some plans cover dental and vision, but most do not. Monthly premiums vary depending on the state and the plan level. In states uh, with lower physician-to-patient ratios, such as the ones in the Western Mountain regions, there aren't enough doctors willing to contract with the Affordable Care Act plans, and thus premiums are much higher in those areas to attract doctors. Thus, the average monthly premium in Wyoming, say, costs $865 a month, right? However, the same level of coverage in Massachusetts is only $343. That's like a $500 plus difference. The reason being is that Massachusetts has more physicians per 100,000 patients than any other state. Thus, the Affordable Care Act plans are not necessarily all that affordable, depending on which state one resides. However, there are certain available subsidies applied to those who are in the very, very low income categories allowing the poorest recipients of Obamacare to pay less than $200 per month for basic coverage. So it's complicated, but because it's necessary for us to all have some sort of health insurance, we need to learn the nuances of whatever plan we purchase. We need to follow the rules, and if everything goes well, then we understand what we got ourselves into, right? Well, not always. You see, there's this one really nasty thing that some insurance companies sometimes slip right in underneath our nose and punch you right in the gut, so to speak. This is one of those truly ugly aspects of healthcare in America, and what I'm talking about is surprise medical billing. So what's that? Well, I'll explain with an example. So let's say you have an HMO insurance plan through your employer. You've chosen this particular plan because it's more economical than the others, and being on a relatively tight budget, you need to do whatever you can to save some money. One day, you develop severe abdominal pain with nausea and vomiting, all of which are really quite horrible. Fortunately, the whole ordeal lasts only about an hour. 
but because it was really one of the worst things you've ever experienced, you decide to schedule an appointment with your primary care doctor to get it checked out. Your appointment isn't until late next week, but your pain is now gone, and so you don't mind waiting. But that night, after eating some cheeseburgers and french fries, you get that horrible pain again, but this time it does not go away after an hour. Two hours pass, then three hours, and finally it's well past midnight, you are exhausted, and you are in so much pain that you can't possibly sleep. You finally, you can't take it anymore, and so you take yourself into the emergency room. But before you head in, you quickly check to be sure that you're going to the right emergency room, to an in-network hospital. When you present yourself to the ER and explain your symptoms, you once again verify that your health insurance plan will be accepted here and that the facility is definitely within network. You see the ER doctor, who orders some tests, and after a few hours, you're diagnosed with acute cholecystitis, inflammation, and infection of the gallbladder due to an obstructing gallstone, and you're admitted to the hospital. Early the next morning, you're seen by a surgeon who discusses matters with you and recommends that he remove your inflamed gallbladder. You agree to the surgery as long as the surgeon is within your HMO network. The surgeon assures you that he is. He definitely is in the network and you agree to have the surgery later that day. You're overly diligent and you want to make absolutely certain that you won't be charged for any out-of-network costs. So you actually call the insurance company and you verify that both the hospital and the surgeon that's going to do your operation, they're both in fact within uh, the network and are approved. You receive the thumbs up from the insurance company and you confidently head to the OR where you have your gallbladder expertly removed. You're discharged to home the following day and you, you have a quick and uneventful recovery. About a month passes and within that period of time, you receive a handful of bills all related to your recent hospitalization. You receive a comprehensive and very expensive hospital bill, but you feel okay with it all as you know that your hospital was within the approved network. You also receive a surgeon's bill, but again, you know that he was an approved doctor within the HMO network. You also receive a bill from the emergency room doctor, from the radiologist, for reading the right upper quadrant ultrasound that the ER doctor used to diagnose your condition. And you receive a bill from the hospital pathologist who looked at your gallbladder under the microscope after it was removed. You receive a bill from the anesthesiologist who put you asleep during the procedure. And when it's all said and done, you have five bills, which collectively add up to a tremendous amount of money. But you know that you'll be fine because you did your homework. You went to a hospital that was within your HMO network and you verified that your surgeon was also a network. You expect to pay no more than the nominal ER copay, which you believe was about $50. However, a few days later, you receive an explanation of benefits from your HMO insurance company indicating that your very expensive trip to that hospital was not all covered by your health insurance. Whereas the hospital portion of the bill was covered, as were the surgeons, anesthesiologists, and pathologist bills, what were not covered were the ER doctor's bill and the radiologist's bill. In total, despite the fact that you thought you would owe little or nothing for your entire hospital stay, you in fact owe several thousand dollars. You are shocked. But after you make some calls, you learn that both the ER doctor and the radiologist were locums doctors. That is, they were physicians who were temporarily subcontracted by the hospital to provide ER physicians and radiologists. Unfortunately, these temporary subcontractors were not part of the HMO pre-approved network, and thus, the full amount for each of these out-of-network physician services rendered became your personal responsibility. You are angry and you are frustrated, but to make matters even worse, you simply don't have a few extra thousand dollars. And so you put off the thought of paying your bill. But after what seems like a very short while, you receive two additional letters in the mail, both from collection agents, informing you that you now owe them the full amount. In addition, to make the entire horrible debacle even more accurate, you learn that when your outstanding debt was transferred to the collection agencies, your credit score is now adversely affected. 
This surprise medical billing is a horrible problem, and those stuck with an unexpected surprise bill have very little ability to fight the charges. In the example given, the patient sought care in an approved hospital ER, but had no idea that the subcontractor physicians would not be a network. Some lawmakers are recognizing that surprise medical billing is, if not grossly fraudulent, seriously misleading at very best. There are several laws in the making being reviewed by legislators hoping to eliminate surprise medical billing altogether. But for the meanwhile, we all remain potential victims of this unscrupulous billing practice. But there's even more bad to report, and that's the fact that insurance companies are trying to regulate how doctors practice medicine. Depending on your particular plan, the insurance company will not only tell you where you could have your studies or doctor's procedures uh, done, but also often decides whether or not they will even allow anybody to do anything or perform the ordered studies. Let's say you have a herniated disc in your lower spine. You have all the classic symptoms and all the classic physical exam findings. Your primary care physician sends you for some physical therapy and you rest up, but things just aren't getting better. You have been in serious pain for weeks and you are miserable. So your primary care physician refers you to an area spine surgeon with an impeccable reputation and he sees you immediately. He orders an MRI to document what he strongly suspects is a herniated disc and you await the insurance company to approve the study. However, the insurance company does not approve the MRI. Rather, you're supposed to first get a set of regular back x-rays. You're angry and your doctor's angry because everybody knows that plain back x-rays do not see herniated discs. But you jump through all the hoops forced on you by the insurance company and you get the x-rays and are concluded as worthless by the spine surgeon. So a week later, the request to have the MRI is resubmitted and you get the study done at the imaging center specifically directed by the insurance company and it positively identifies and confirms a herniated disc. A day later, you get a call from the spine surgeon who offers you a minimally invasive procedure to relieve your massive disc extrusion, which is pressing directly on one of your nerve roots. You agree to the surgery, you set up a date, and you make arrangements at work to have some time off. However, the insurance company isn't quite ready to approve the surgery. They, not exactly sure who they are because nobody at the insurance company is ever identified by name, but anyway, they decide that they need 15 working days to go over the chart and they will be the ones who decide if you can have surgery. 15 working days, which of course translates into 21 actual days on a calendar. 21 more days of pain and suffering, all of which could have been relieved at that most revered spine surgeon whose reputation is impeccable. But it's the insurance company who is calling the shots, all in the name of saving money. And this, in my opinion, insurance companies meddling in how doctors practice medicine is an unequivocally ugly aspect of healthcare in America. And by the way, the reason that this is so particularly irritating to me is because the person in the example that I gave is one of my partners, who is in so much pain that she makes hospital rounds in a wheelchair. Again, it's all pure ugliness and a travesty in my opinion. So where do we go from here? Actually, I don't have any magical solution to the complex health insurance problem because unfortunately, I don't see health insurance as getting any less complicated and I certainly don't see it getting any cheaper. However, I feel that it strongly behooves everyone who purchases any healthcare plan to know their options well in advance of picking a plan. I advise people to ask their human resources counselor or insurance advisor to give detailed explanations of all of the rules and all the nuances of each of the plan options. Next, I advise everyone to budget at least some money to cover what will inevitably be their out-of-pocket portion of the bill should anyone need healthcare services. And I especially advise those planning to retire to anticipate needing to buy a health insurance supplement to cover what will not be covered by Medicare. And finally, People, do everything you can to stay healthy because 
Getting sick or injured may actually cost you an arm and a leg. And with that, I conclude today's riveting discussion on health insurance. And I invite each of you to look for my next podcast on healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm Dr. James Cole, and as always, I thank you for listening. This podcast and the rest of the podcasts in this series reflect my opinions and do not necessarily represent the positions of any other institution or entity. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Marie Hathaway for the artwork and for producing this podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed the guitar music because that is me playing and taking my own creative liberties. And we hope that you will again join us for our next episode of Healthcare in America, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly.